Though it happens so often. The idea of setting out your stuff. Often items with sentimental value. In the yard or driveway for strangers to peruse can be unsettling. More than likely, most of the things you're selling are either unused, taking up space, or are done so to help with a transition to a new home. Maybe it's just to pocket a little extra cash. That old TV, a set of hair curlers, blankets, shoes that are too worn or too small to keep in your closet. Sometimes this is the last stop before being unceremoniously dropped at a donation center. See if there are a few nickels to be made from that pair of lampshades in the back of your attic. Still, even without many of these items having any emotional attachment, there's still a bit of a tug when you see them being packed away in a stranger's trunk. Questions float in your mind. Did I leave cash in the pocket of those jeans? Did I take my sunglasses out of that purse? Were any old photos or souvenirs stashed between the pages of that paperback? There's also the awkward, sometimes forced interactions with those strangers while they rifle through your life's goods. Every time something is picked up, then dropped again, do you feel even the slightest bit annoyed, like, not good enough for you? But then, the conversations. Some might have just been driving by. Others drawn in by the cardboard and sharpie signs you tacked to the lampposts in the immediate vicinity. If you're new to the area, they are all strangers. Some from a few towns over. Others just over the fence in your backyard. Getting to know the neighbors doesn't seem to be the priority it once was. Block parties, barbecues, bake sales. They all seem to be falling out of favor. The need to connect with those who share your property lines or your HOA meetings with anything more than cursory smiles or waves feels forced these days. Maybe this is a result of technology, of having TVs and radios and the internet in the house of being able to connect with anyone at any time around the world. Gone are the days where knowing the neighbors meant knowing the pulse of not only your neighborhood, but of the community, of society. Maybe we just hide more. We blame this on the darker world we're living in, the horror stories on the news, in our social media feeds. We lock our doors now. Leaving the house feels more problematic than ever before. We could be kidnapped or shot at while we were at the mall. We could catch a rare virus or be caught in a superstorm. It's safer inside. It's safer to hide. But as we lessen our connection with the outside world, the more we must enact our dreams at home, our fantasies and nightmares. All of this happens behind closed doors and over fences. That's it. I haven't gone to meet the neighbors because I'm worried they might have seen me out by the pool, cocktail in hand, wearing my wife's bikini. What if 
we no longer rush out to make friends with the neighbors, not because of what we might find out about them or from them, but because we are scared about what they already know about us. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 9 Yard sale was a deceptive term for the neighborhood, as was garage sale. Denny and Kate didn't lay out their used wares on the lawn, nor did they set up a table in the garage, because in the South, a garage seemed excessive, unnecessary. The weather never got to the point where closure was essential. And as it turned out, Dollar Tree also didn't have carport sale signs relatively available. Their third customer of the morning reminded them of their misleading signage. Just like that, between heaving breaths, the woman said, This ain't a yard sale. You got all your stuff tucked back in here, making us walk down that beast of a driveway. She was pushing 60 pasty white, and she kept patting her sweaty forehead with the cuff of a floral print housecoat. The woman was still wearing slippers and had blocked the mouth of the driveway with her late model Econoline van. The vehicle was about as rusty as she was. Under her free arm, she squished two semi-stained, caseless pillows against her bulging body. Two of the items Denny had wanted to throw away, but his mom insisted would catch a buyer's eye. You'd be surprised what some people will buy, she'd said. Denny hadn't had a second cup of coffee yet, so his patience was thin. To make matters worse, Kate had abandoned him to do something in the house, and this just happened to be a moment where both of his parents were AWOL. It wasn't even 8 a.m. No good could come of this. Sorry, we can't change the topography, Denny said. Or the clientele. The top of what? The woman asked half-heartedly. She was paying more attention to a stack of paperbacks threatening to topple over. How much you want for these? A quarter apiece, Denny said. Yuck. Denny couldn't believe it. She actually replied with yuck. Though he couldn't be sure as... The woman had yet to make eye contact in the four excruciating minutes since she'd landed, whether she was disgusted by the price or general theme of the books. Didn't matter to him. He said, You're right. Fifty cents each. But the woman wasn't listening to him. She was mumbling about something, another sort of complaint, apparently, while moving on to the pile of old purses Kate and Joan had amassed in the center of an unrolled rug. Denny's brain was telling him to flick his cigarette at the woman's wide ass as she bent over, trying to aim for the bullseye, and Denny thought that he might actually be unable to stop himself when his mother walked outside. Coffee steamed from the mug in her hand, and the screen door slammed behind her. A savior had arrived. 
Joan walked right over to the shopper, saying, Morning! Find yourself some pillows? Seizing this opportunity, Denny went inside, relishing the thought that maybe he or Kate or the pair of them had allowed myriad body fluids to seep into those pillows. Kate and Barry were doctoring up their own cups of coffee. The dogs were on the back porch, wagging and fogging up the glass doors. Muscling in with his own mug, Denny said, Get out there and meet the neighbors. Are they cool? Kate asked, an air of excitement in her voice. The possibility of meeting new people or making friends was a high priority for both of them. Since moving to Georgia, they'd made friends with exactly two people. Greg, the guy who'd come to assess the damage to their pool liner, and his wife, Vicky. Denny'd offered Greg a beer one afternoon, then the man showed up later with a mason jar of his own clear whiskey. They'd spent a few drunken nights together, but the couple's interests were far afield from one another, and after a few weeks, the friendship had dissolved into little more than social media comments. Other than them, the Coltons hadn't made any friends. It wasn't for a lack of trying. During the first six months, they went out to bars and book readings. They went to pool halls and struck up conversations. Mostly it was Denny who did the striking, as Kate was more of the introvert, but she was happy to try. The problem was, after the drunken promises of hanging out in the hard light of daytime, the plans failed to materialize. Their neighborhood was much older, with couples and widowers rounding out most of the nearby homes. There were waves and pleasantries exchanged when they walked Roxy and Echo around the block, but nothing that felt more than fleeting. Each of their teaching positions failed to yield any connection longer than shared groans and faculty meetings, as most of their colleagues were either nearing retirement or simply too different than what Kate and Denny were looking for in Friends. It wasn't that they were picky, but rather more and more set in their ways as time had rolled on. They needed more than people to take shots with. Then the pandemic hit and effectively shut down any physical connection to the neighborhood, the local community, humanity. They were, it seemed, on an island, with their lasting friends thousands of miles away. None had even been able to visit in the year since Kate and Denny began calling Georgia home. Part of it was logistics, money, and schedules, while traveling had also been severely impeded by the virus. And for a good amount of them, their lives were just moving on. There were new jobs and new kids and closer friendships to continue cultivating. Most phone calls and text messages and social media conversations were filled by memories and possible hope for future connections. It was hard, very hard, as both were, despite their opposing extrovert-introvert personalities, propelled and lifted by friends, their friends. Without them, depression and anxiety more easily acquired significant footholds. Hence why the upcoming arrival of new house guests was such a big deal. These were real friends, a couple who'd met and began dating after Kate and Denny's own wedding. Kyle, Denny's best friend and best man, hit it out with Megan, Kate's maid of honor. Cliché, sure. 
Almost too good to be true? Absolutely. But somehow, it worked. Two years later, the couple was still stronger than ever, engaged and scheduled to arrive at the Coleman's house in less than a week. Their eagerness about the visit was almost enough to override the feelings their house was forcing upon them. Almost. Nodding toward the back door, She's super cool, Denny said. Really into Dean Koontz paperbacks and old purses. I think you and her are going to hit it off. Kate took a sip of her coffee, studied Denny's face, then went outside. Turning to his dad, Denny said, So, you change your mind about hanging out with us today? I vote you just give it all away, Barry said. Barry wasn't a second-hand kind of man, buying or selling. When he was a kid, every time the Air Force needed them to relocate, Denny and his mom were the ones haggling with the townsfolk over microwaves and wall hangings, while Barry either existed in the Middle East or hiding somewhere in the back of the house. It was always easier for him to give it up than to buy new. He was a more private man than his wife or son. Besides, I have to take the last load up to the house, Barry said. While Kate and Joan had readied the carport sale, Denny and Barry had taken the majority of the lingering moving boxes up to the new house, as well as did most of the unpacking up there. Not the decorating, mind you, as that was Joan's realm, but taking the items out of the cartons, then the slew of cardboard to the recycling center. All that was left were their electronics and suitcases. He'd run those up, then hide out until the customers died down. When the sun set that day, Barry planned to return to pick up Joan so that they could spend their first night in the new house. Do you want some help? Denny asked. Those old arms of yours could use a break. Nope. You aren't getting out of this. The ladies need your help. Outside, they could both hear three women's voices bouncing off of one another. I think they can handle it. You never know, Barry said. The natives might overtake them without a man in the house. If they get too restless, you know where the boomstick is. The thought of the shotgun made Denny picture the bodies of his family again. The dogs and their tug of war. He shuddered. You like this stuff anyway, Barry went on. Chatting with people, being a butterfly. Yeah, later in the day, after breakfast. You know, making new friends isn't a bad thing, Pops. I've got all I need already. With that, Barry slipped back into the house and Denny lingered by the carport door, listening. He didn't want to go out there, but he knew they'd be calling his name soon. Denny had all the petty cash in his pocket. He took a long, slow sip of the hot coffee, steeled himself, then went out into the budding heat. To his surprise, the mouth breather was already lumbering back up the driveway. He could hear her wheezing from the back of the carport waiting until the woman had climbed in with the pillows, then shut the door of her van, Denny finally said, She was a real Georgia peach, wasn't she? Kate was sitting in a plastic chair, fanning herself with a paper plate. Her name was Marjorie Smothers. Seriously. She lives the next street over. Been here over 40 years. How nice, Denny said, lighting a cigarette. He felt a tinge of desperation thinking about what it might be like to live there for another 39 years.
stuck. That's exactly how he felt in that moment. She thanked us for moving in, Kate said. What? Then he asked. Why? Joan cut in, saying, These are very different people down here, different ways of thinking. Cut her a break. Kate watched her mother-in-law restack the paperbacks, then went on. She said, quote, I'm sure glad y'all moved in here. I thought she might have meant she was glad younger people were filling in some of the houses. It is pretty old around here. So I told her, yeah, we like the neighborhood and all that stuff. She's just an old woman, Joan said, like me. You aren't that old, Kate said, or that crazy. Miss Marjorie went on to say that it had nothing to do with our age, but, quote, if y'all hadn't moved in, then more of the blacks would have. You gotta be fucking kidding me, Denny said. No, Kate went on. She said, the blacks. I couldn't even respond. I just stared at my coffee. I was waiting for her to drop an N-bomb. She didn't mean it like that, Joan said. She meant that she was glad people with a better economic standing were moving in. You know, keeping the home values up. She didn't even buy anything, Kate said. I saw she took those nasty pillows. She wanted to give us a nickel for each, and I told her we didn't have that sort of change, so your mom just said she could have them. You're a saint, mom, Denny said. He sat in another plastic chair. Welcome to the South, I guess. The rest of the morning was relatively uneventful, besides the rising heat. Barry had slipped out between customers, and Denny had positioned two box fans on either side of the carport that did nothing to assuage the heat, but rather just moved the hot air around. They'd sold about 35% of what was laid out, and Kate estimated that Denny had close to 200 sweaty, crumpled dollars in his pocket. There were a few rushes, five or six cars lining up on Muldoon Street, and for the most part, the neighbors and passers-by were friendly. During the lulls between, Kate felt the urge to bring up the house, to bring up the basement, to talk more specifically to Joan, to apologize. For what? Kate really didn't know. A week had passed since her basement experience, and they'd been busy enough that Kate's mind had periods of reprieve. The dog's paws were healing fine, and she'd slept with lights and TV blaring most of the nights. Setting up the sale and helping with her in-laws' transition, along with the continual onslaught of student and faculty emails, was enough to distract her from the dread, the palpable fear she felt in the house. But still, it was always there, in the back of her mind, like radio static from another floor. She was certain now. There was something in their home. Or multiple somethings. Denny had been far away. Not physically. He still hugged and kissed her. Took out the trash. They'd made love once. Then Kate slipped out to the living room after Denny passed out. No, he seemed to be working something out inside himself. He was withdrawn. On the converse, he wasn't saying she was crazy or hysterical. He wasn't trying to fix anything. Denny hadn't tried to fix her. A popular pastime for him normally. It was like he had become a political pundit, neither confirming nor denying her fears, or his own. Kate felt like they were both on edge, 
like they were waiting. But for what? The next nightmare? The next time cold hands curled around her throat? Waiting to experience something together? To be in the same room at the same time and have whatever it was attack them both? Would that make it real? Could they talk about it then? And even still, if that did happen, so what? What could they do? Every dollar they had was in this house. They weren't going anywhere. They'd just have to wait and see. At least I'm not alone, Kate thought. She was about to ask Denny if he wanted to go inside for lunch, because honestly, she never went anywhere alone in the house anymore. When another car pulled up. Kate figured she'd wait to see what sort of interaction this might bring. Denny had taken the over on at least three racial slurs being heard that day. The pair were an older couple, about Denny's folks' age. They had mouching outfits and left a shining Cadillac at the end of the driveway. Both wore visors. The man headed for the boxes of vinyl records Denny stacked on one wall, while the woman was drawn to Denny's mom. Something about them told Kate they weren't Southerners. They looked like golfers. These were transplants, taking their time cruising neighborhoods on a Saturday afternoon. The women began chatting. Kate said, Want me to make us some sandwiches? Having dozed off in his chair, Denny didn't respond, and Kate was about to get up to shake him when she heard the visored woman say, It's a shame I haven't come over to introduce myself yet. I spent many an afternoon in your backyard, down by the pool. Did you? Joan said. Maybe you could help figure out what's wrong with it. For a moment, Kate was irritated by both her inability to judge locals versus transplants, as well as Joan not saying this wasn't her house. Sure, she co-signed, but it wasn't her house, no matter how many orders she tried to give. I said I laid by it, the woman responded, laughing. Not worked on it. I'm Sharon, and that's my old man, Terry. Without turning, the husband waved a hand, then continued flipping through the records. Kate approached the table of knickknacks the two women stood beside. The white plastic top, an array for salt shakers, and Christmas ornaments separated the older ladies from Kate. After introducing herself and shaking Sharon's hand, Joan said, This is my daughter-in-law. This is actually her house. I'm just here to help. Shaking the woman's hand, she said, I'm Kate. You said you live in the neighborhood? Right behind you, Sharon said. Feeling herself blush, Kate started, I'm so sorry. We've been busy moving in and settling and... Not at all, Sharon interrupted. I should have brought over cookies or one of my famous pies by now. I'm the bitch. All three women laughed together, half uneasily, half sincerely. Kate had seen them before, she realized now. But the backyards were spread out, and there were enough trees to keep privacy for both houses. It was easy to live next to someone for a year and not ever be forced to meet them. Still, Kate felt like a bad adult. How long has it been since you and... Sharon said, trailing off. Dennis, Kate told her, while the three women stared at the dozing man. Denny. A year, Sharon said, her voice rising. I really am a bitch. 
We've just been back and forth between here and Florida. We've got a... We just moved up from Florida, Joan said. And the two women began talking about more similarities and differences. Oh, I love Pensacola. Yeah, we considered that area, but we just couldn't find what we were looking for. Exactly. Taxes. That's what brought us here, too. Where do you go to church? Kate checked out during most of this, feeling her eyes glaze over. And Denny came awake with a snort behind them, pausing the conversation. He stretched, wiped off his forehead, then went over to the man perusing the records. Soon, they were deep in conversation about obscure prog rock bands from the early 70s. So, you knew the people who lived here before us? Kate asked, realizing she was interrupting, but not caring too much. For a few years, I got to know Rose real well. She was always over at our place. We spent a lot of time making things. Like crafts? Joan said. You could say that, Sharon said, picking up a plated gold incense holder and turning it over in her hands. I make necklaces, Joan said. Kate here, she's a seamstress and a hell of a cook. Now, I will keep that in mind. I've lost the will to cook in recent years. Terry's about to lose his mind. I'll just send him over here. He's welcome any time. You both are, Kate said, and not wanting to lose her chance, asked, What were they like? Rose and Patrick? Sharon set down the incense holder and locked eyes with Kate. Like anybody else. You're normal Georgians. They were from here? Joan asked. Born and raised, I think. At least Joan was. Not sure about her husband. Didn't get on with him much. Not for lack of trying. He was just a private man, a man of secrets. Always either at the VFW or down in the basement, tinkering on things. They were the first owners, right? I know they bought the house when it was built and lived here ever since. Well, until you moved in. Wow. That has to be what? 50 years? Joan asked. At least. Sharon moved around the table, looking at other items occasionally gazing toward the screen door and into the house. And she, um, Rose, she moved to Arizona to be with her kids? Kate asked, parroting what their realtor, Connie Smartly, had told them. Oh, they never had kids, Sharon said, cutting a confused look at Kate. Oh, I'm sorry, our agent told us she went out to live with her family after her husband died. I just assumed... I don't know about all that. We sort of lost touch after Patrick died. A bit before, too. How do you mean? Kate asked, feeling herself maybe overstepping the bounds of a first conversation with a neighbor, but again, not caring too much. She spent all her time in that front room with him until the end. Then afterward, she just never seemed to leave the house. Front room? Yeah, Sharon said. In the corner, that one overlooking the pool. You're saying the husband died in the house? Kate asked, a chill coursing inside her. Better to pass away at home than in some sterile hospital bed, I say. In her head, Kate was damning Connie smartly. Kate insisted, along with her sage smudging and blessing, that she know the living, and dying, history of the home. Not that she was opposed to buying a house where someone died, but she'd at least like to have known the circumstances. Connie had assured her that one of the previous owners had died after a long battle with cancer, and the widow had moved away shortly after. But this happened in a hospital room. 
The house was empty for three months while it was on the market. Empty, Kate thought. This place is never really empty. Everything else about the previous owners had been pieced together through instruction manuals and receipts and other various clues around the house, like the student ID Denny had found in the attic. Patrick Westerberg had gone to the local community college in the 70s to pursue an associate's degree in electrical engineering. Then she moved to Arizona, Kate said. Kate, stop bombarding the customers with all these questions, Joan said. Sharon laughed, but answered. I don't know exactly. One day, she was just gone. Moving trucks, workers, whole nine. Kate felt weakness creep into her legs. If nothing had happened in the house, then she might not have been feeling that way. It would be an unfortunate notion, and pity might have been passed through osmosis, but nothing more. People die. Often, they do so in houses. But now, it seemed like there might be a connection. Was it his spirit? Was this old reclusive husband trying to get them out of his house? I mean, maybe that's why I haven't come over to meet you and your husband yet. Don't want to get to know the neighbors, then have them up and uh, disappear on me. Speaking of men, I need to meet yours. With that, Sharon went over and shook hands with Denny. Only the second husband to call the house in the corner of Muldoon and Bradbury home. The second husband within the walls of High Hopes. This episode was read by Dr. Scarelove. Theme music on today's show was provided by Atrium Carcheri. Please go over and check out Atrium Carcheri and all the other artists on Simon's label Cryo Chamber on Bandcamp. As always, please like and subscribe as this is a new podcast. Any reviews help. Thank you so much. And remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?